welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast more often than not. Although for this episode, Leon Weaseltier is hosting and he is joined by the very excellent Michael Kimmage, who is a professor of history at Catholic University. He and Leon discuss Michael's most recent essay in the latest issue of Liberties, which is entitled The Rise of Decline. The essay itself, which is available to subscribers on our website and also, of course, in hard copy, is about the rhetoric of American decline, which is ubiquitous and also, he and Leon argue, not true. Um, Please enjoy the podcast. Michael Kimmage, my friend, welcome to Liberties. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, anytime. We are here to discuss, if you don't mind my saying, your masterful essay in our new issue about decline and declinism in America, not just as a political phenomenon, but also uh, you give the intellectual history of declinism in a way that connects it uh, very stingingly, actually, to American intellectual and political realities. So let's talk about this this awful subject. Um, I was recently at a conference in Amsterdam, an international conference of philosophers, politicians, uh, blowhards, who I think are not the same as philosophers, but some of our listeners may disagree, Uh, from various countries, and many of them seem to agree that in some historically significant way, the United States is over in the sense that it it is irreversibly in decline and will no longer occupy the position that it did on the world stage. And moreover, they not only believed this, they articulated this belief gleefully. There was a certain amount of schadenfreude about the troubles that our country has been experiencing. And they seemed liberated by the prospect of America's weakness. Uh, What do you think about that? Well, I think it resonates with uh, many experiences I've had over the last year, sort of anecdotal, informal, but also uh, intellectual. I can't say how often I've heard conversations among friends about what kind of citizenship in addition to U.S. citizenship would you like to have when the sort of house comes down uh, as if that's going to happen in the next six to eight uh, months. Uh, And, you know, that's that's an informal matter, but it's 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 replicated across the intellectual spectrum with constant references to uh, to decline. I think we can uh, address many of them in the course of this uh, conversation, but uh, just one that sort of comes vividly to mind was an overheated piece about the cultural significance of The Sopranos and why young people are watching it again. Uh, and this was in the New York Times Magazine. It just took, you know, the sort of um, uh, onset of decline for an absolute given in American culture, in American political economy, in American uh, in American life. So it's it's clearly a thesis statement that's very prominently. Uh, out there. And what intrigues me about it uh, is that it's there on the left, uh, it's there on the right, and it's also there at the political center. So (laughs) in every direction you look at the moment, this is what you're hearing. There's no question that the international situation, this increasingly Habesian world, the various uh, global crises of migration and 
state instability and environment um, and so on has changed whatever the climate would be for American leadership in the world. But the causes, I think you will agree, of American decline, if that is what it is, uh, are not to be found only outside our borders. Uh, so my question, to, my question to you now is, to what extent have we done this to ourselves? To what extent are we declining because we believe that we're declining? Well, you know, I would say to a, uh, to a great extent, I'll just touch briefly on, 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 on geopolitics or foreign policy since you mentioned it at the beginning of your, uh, of your question. And I think that what's an objective reality is that relative to where the United States was in the world in 1995, um, it's not as powerful a country. It's not as, uh, as prominent. Uh, and that's for the simple reason that a few other countries have, have risen up. Mainly one. Yeah. Well, meaning that, you know, sort of China is now a sort of major economic presence. Uh, Russia has modernized its military, can, you know, sort of project power uh, in various places. And that's true for other countries as well. So the sort of anomalous moment of the 1990s uh, is over. And if that's the benchmark that we use, uh, the United States is not quite uh, what it was. But uh, I think at the very best, that's an example of relative decline. Uh, and um, uh, is to me no indication that there's a kind of absolute decline. But Michael, we know that historically, the the golden age of alleged American hegemony of American world leadership took place uh, when America had very powerful rivals in the world. In other words, America's world leadership was not premised on the absence of any states to rival it. Of, of course, and you know, the, probably the most protean, interesting, creative and, and powerful period of American foreign policy is the 1940s after the Second World War when there's a great deal of institution building and, and the United States certainly has a strong vision that it was acting upon and that was uh, intention, tension, um, absolutely intention with the Soviet Union uh, and there were in the 1940s many countries that didn't sub subscribe to the American uh, the American point of view. So again, you know, if we go to the 1990s and sort of um, look to the moment when the United States was the king of the hill and and and, and make judgments by by comparison with that moment, uh, we'll get certain kinds of outcomes. But a fuller look at the history of American foreign policy suggests that the U.S. has always had to you know make its claims uh, in the face of powerful. Uh, enemies, rivals, competitors, etc. So where we are now is where we've, we've, we've typically been. Of course, the declinists among us, and as you point out, they're to be found in every camp, uh, they are not merely arguing that we are declining as a factual matter. They are making a deeper argument to the effect that American leadership, American centrality in the world, was illegitimate, that it, for, for people on the right, it violates Washington's farewell address, and for people on the left, it was a form of imperialism. And so what we're witnessing is not just, as I say, a historical judgment about the relative advantages of states in the world right now, but also a philosophical view of what America's role in the world should be. I think that's, that's very true. And I think that that is, you could say, the inner appeal uh, of decline 
uh, or declinism, if it were just a question of sort of a relative readjustment vis-a-vis other great powers, uh, that's interesting, but it doesn't give you the kind of storyline that people are uh, indulging in uh, at the the present moment. I think that to develop your point, there's an element of self-flattery in, in, in the declinist outlook. Uh, in a sense, the country is declining because what I'm saying it should be doing, it's not doing. Uh, or it's declining because my sort of preferred political precepts uh, are, not, uh, are not ascendant. And so there's, um, you know, very often a kind of, uh, oddly in a way, a kind of egotism uh, to the, the declinist hypothesis. It, it, it becomes a statement of of a world that's sort of not satisfying your expectations for it or a country that's not satisfying your expectations for it. And you use the term schadenfreude. I mean, there's a kind of joy uh, in the declinist outlook. (laughs) You said a moment ago it emancipates people, it sort of frees them from, um, I suppose, having to take responsibility for the status quo or sort of existing institutions. uh, And that's liberatory, but um, by no means does that suggest to me that these arguments are uh, are correct, uh, or, or, or even in most cases, admirable. To paraphrase Ambrose Bierce, decline can be defined as your failure to execute my foreign policy. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your understanding as you write them up in your essay of the causes of decline. I start with the essay, I start with the figure of, uh, of Edward Gibbon, and, and, and the reason I do is, well, first of all, he's, a, you know, he's always a wonderful author to read uh, and, and, you know, probably the greatest writer to have ever addressed the topic of, uh, of decline. But I start with Gibbon because I felt like in the American debate, uh, it's enormously fuzzy uh, and there's no sense of definition. Uh, there's nothing tangible when people speak about decline. They are sort of plugging in their own variables and their own equations uh, willy-nilly. And so we do get this kind of personal egotism that's often masquerading as profound thoughts about where the country is going and what the nature of its culture and politics is. And Gibbon, I found very helpful uh, because he does uh, provide something of a framework for understanding uh, decline, or at the very least, the decline of the, uh, of the, of the Roman Empire. And, and for Gibbon, there were three elements. There was uh, imperial overreach. I think that's the most familiar one, the one that we're likely to associate with Gibbon, an empire that grows too, too large, difficult to, to defend, is expensive to defend. Assuming for a moment that the United States has been an empire, but we'll leave that aside. Yeah, well, I'm not trying to connect Gibbon with the United States here. I'm just uh, uh, thinking about the topic of, of, uh, of decline. And then, you know, sort of secondarily, Gibbon focuses on the Senate and the decline of the Roman Senate. So sort of mixed government or uh, checks and balances, Roman style, uh, unravel over time in his assessment. Uh, and then thirdly, in a way, most interestingly, what, what Gibbon writes about is a kind of intellectual decline, uh, that there was a time when Roman literature was vital, uh, when language was used in you know, sort of clear uh, and helpful ways, and then a kind of decadence sets in, uh, and you know, philosophers are replaced by commentators uh, in, in, in the language of Gibbon. So what I try to do in the essay is take these three points uh, individually uh, and apply them to where uh, to where the United States is, but I think Gibbon is a very helpful place to begin because at least he gives us some benchmarks for thinking about this topic, as opposed to just creating a decline that we uh, somehow imagine into being. Well, you also, of course, as one would have to mention Spengler and his work, and of course the phenomenon of declinism is also attached to uh, 
the new cultural currency in the United States of pessimism, um, of fatalism. You see analyses of capitalism according to which the income inequality gap is simply irreversible owing to the nature of capitalism. You see analyses of the racial situation according to which progress was little or none and the better part of wisdom is to recognize that African Americans will always be in this situation and have to rely only on themselves. Uh, you know, I'm talking about um, about Thomas Piketty, about capitalism, and people like Tanahasi Coates on race. But you see pessimism, and it, you know, in some cases, I dare say the pessimism is justified. But I think you would agree that pessimism as a mood can be very counterproductive or self-fulfilling. Yes, it's a kind of intoxicant, and that's why it is very helpful to go back to Spangler. I mean, I think I do see Spangler and Gibbon as contrasting figures in this regard. Gibbon is a remarkably lucid, uh, in his own right, kind of an optimistic thinker. The very final paragraphs of Decline and Fall, Gibbon's Decline and Fall, uh, are about progress, actually, uh, and how progress emerges from the wreckage of the Roman uh, Empire. So he writes about decline in part because he wants to understand progress, whereas Spangler is a mystic and, uh, you know, in some respects, I think, kind of unreadable in German and English when the books came out. Now, um, he's one of these figures that one kind of refers to as a tagline, but uh, it's hard to make uh, one's way through the books. But I think what he does is make a intoxicant out of decline. Uh, it, it equates with profundity, uh, everything sort of pales by comparison. Uh, and then to be an Enlightenment optimist, having read Spangler, uh, you know, it starts to feel sort of uh, improbable. So in that sense, Spangler, I think, is a kind of, um, you know, he's a kind of presiding spirit of our present moment, that there are a lot of Spanglerians out there on the left and the right, um, because this mood uh, is both sort of categorical uh, and uh, can seem wise or sort of seem wiser than the alternatives, although I wouldn't uh, say that that's the case. And in terms of the American lineage or genealogy of pessimism, um, despite the you know, stereotype of the United States as an optimistic, forward-looking country, uh, we have Henry Adams uh, in the 1890s and, uh, and thereafter uh, writing with, with great intelligence, often with brilliance, about decline. Uh, he often used the word entropy, a kind of energy exiting the system and the world is spiraling toward greater chaos and violence and uh, disintegration. Yeah, and he, you know, is validated to a degree when the First World War breaks out uh, and, you know, the the mood in the West uh, changes um, in terms of um, the balance of optimism uh, and pessimism, but there's a lot of political ugliness that accompanies the pessimistic outlook in Adams, uh, the anti-Semitism, the, you know, sort of fears and hatreds of modernity, uh, etc. But he's a very eloquent voice in the kind of American pessimistic tradition. And then I think also... Uh, and, you know, certainly relevant for our discussions now of foreign policy is George Kennan, uh, that uh, especially in his diaries and uh, some of his more private writings is unbelievably uh, pessimistic. Uh, one said that he would rather live in Siberia than live on Fifth Avenue. Uh, and what I would want to emphasize with Kennan is really the American nature of his pessimism. He was pessimistic about America, not just about... He may have seen, he may have seen a vision that Trump would eventually live there. Yes. On Fifth Avenue, I mean.
<laughs> That's true. <laughs> the proverbial uh, person that Trump could shoot on Fifth Avenue and well, exactly yes. That's it. What, what if, yes, yes. Um, but to some extent, uh, that tradition of pessimism was also a tradition of disenchantment with modernity, with technology, and with multi-ethnicity. I mean, right? I mean, there was, you see that also in Henry James, notoriously in The Return of the Native. Um, there are these people who cannot, who, who confuse American change for American decline or choose to interpret American change for American decline. Uh, and they lived at moments of, of uh, dramatic change, as we are now. Yes, and in a way, this is the strain of pessimism that I find easiest to understand. I don't personally sympathize with it, but I find it easiest to understand. It's sort of the reactionary pessimism um, that trickles into politics and uh, has inspired a certain st style of, of, of cultural criticism. Uh, and it, it ebbs and flows. It sort of has its periods of, 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 uh, of, of ascendance, but it's, it's always been with us. Uh, and whether it is Henry James returning to New York in 1905 after living in London, uh, and being horrified by the, the sound of Yiddish in the streets of New York and the skyscrapers and the hustle and bustle of American life, or if it's Henry Adams and his pessimism, or Kennan, who I think is adequately described uh, as reactionary, or to go a little bit further forward in political time, Pat Buchanan, uh, who I think is really an overtly reactionary voice, you know, anti-immigration, you know, modern America is an affront to him, uh, and uh, he tries to think his way out of, <laughs> think his way out of American uh, modernity, but what's intriguing about our present moment is that we don't just have this familiar reactionary uh, pessimism, we have a kind of progressive pessimism, and that to me seems really quite uh, new. I find fewer precedents for that back in the 60s or back uh, first half of the 20th century. I think it's much harder to find. And it certainly is, speaking about recent history, it certainly is an unexpected and dramatic turn away from the spirit of Obama's progressivism, which was all about, yes, we can, and so on. I think that's a really crucial piece of the, uh, a crucial piece of the, of, of the puzzle. I think Obama had sewn into the carpet of the Oval Office, uh, you know, the famous words of Martin Luther King, the sort of uh, leitmotif of the Obama presidency, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards Justice, and I think Obama was was sincere about that. Uh, he presented problems that could be overcome. You have that famous, you know, sort of irritating but famous phrase of Bill Clinton's that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be solved by what's right with America. And you know, I think Obama was more eloquent than that, but it was sort of that uh, that idea. Uh, and that idea in 2008, when Obama was elected, certainly uh, on the left side of the of the political spectrum, despite the financial crisis and uh, the after effects of the Iraq war and such. I mean, that sort of progressivism was a very plausible proposition in 2008. And I don't know exactly when and how uh, it dissipates, but it does start to dissipate well before Trump is elected uh, in 2016. And now it's sort of exploded. I think it's almost hard to find progressive voices at the moment who aren't. Some of it, of course, has to do with Obama's performance as president, which was rhetorically of the highest order, but otherwise left a lot to be desired for progressives and liberals. To be sure, yeah. He bridged a kind of uh, a divide in the Democratic Party that uh, once he was in power was much, much more difficult to bridge. And 
uh, that sort of, uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of crack up that occurs uh, uh, in the progressive world under, uh, under Obama, uh, and it has to do with things that his presidency did not deliver, and I think also to a degree with the state of the world from 2008 to, 20, to 2016, which has, you know, the second Obama term in terms of international affairs is full of um, reverses, setbacks, difficulties, uh, catastrophes, the reversal of the Arab Spring, uh, all of that, I think it just sours the mood. Your use of the term crack up, I think, is really to the point. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about declinism as uh, confusion about change. One of the things that has been apparent to me is the enormous impact of first of the technology, but I don't just mean uh, the technology as a technology, but upon its impact upon human attention, upon the emotions, upon personal relations, upon politics, the acceleration of everything, um, the, 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 the new prestige of anger in our society of, of the most vicious kind of spontaneity as if a person's best thoughts are her first thoughts. And then if you look at the intellectual scene, you see a crack up in that ideas that used to go together no longer go together. And various new um, groupings are discussed or formed that take ideas from the left and the right, and not in the old um, practitioner sense of best practices, we'll just learn from anything that works kind of thing. I mean, there is some deep sense in which the right has had a breakdown, the left has had a breakdown, the distinction between liberalism and progressivism has now been erased, and so on. And it is very hard for people to find their bearings in this landscape. My question is, don't you think? I find myself sympathizing with a lot that you, uh, with a lot that you describe. And, uh, you know, in the essay, I, I sort of land on the figure of Václav Havel, um, who... Um, wrote this very remarkable essay in the late 1970s, The Power of the Powerless, about greengrocers in the communist system who are being asked to put up signs in their shops, and they, they don't always as a sort of small act of resistance. And Havel, you know, addresses the question of, of agency on the smallest level, most individual level, and he builds it into a whole vision of civil society. And, and what just amazes me about Havel, given that he was a dissident, a political prisoner at the time, there was no sign that the world was going to go his way is, is the self-confidence with which he writes uh, about agency uh, and the potential for citizenship. Uh, and it is simply intriguing to me, given all that you describe, technological changes, uh, changes in the political spectrum. Uh, it's remarkable to me that, first of all, we tend not to see this as ferment, that, uh, you know, the sort of the, the vibrancy of change in some ways is rather uh, is rather exciting, and perhaps there's something new that's being born in addition to all that's being cracked up uh, and broken up, but we tend <laughs> at the moment not to see it as ferment. Uh, the instinct is to look at things much more uh, as decline, but also, and to me almost more importantly, the sort of denial of our own agency, uh, the refusal to look at our own agency. And if Havel could do it in the late 70s in the communist system when he had very little objective agency, 
uh, surely we can envision ways in the present moment uh, that, you know, sort of enable uh, and identify uh, our own uh, agency. And so that's, you know, sort of my ultimate fear with the overindulgence of this notion of, of, of decline is that we will mistake um, what is a difficult, you know, frightening, uh, disturbing moment, but we'll mis- mistake that for the totality uh, and we'll minimize our own agency uh, in the process. Or mistake problems for destinies, and they're not the same thing. Uh, you know, it's very germane that you bring up Havel uh, in the sense that when he wrote that essay, well, everything he wrote was all about the creation and sustenance of hope. And hope is a very slippery concept, but one thing about hope should be clear, which is that if the situation were certain, if there were no uncertainty, uh, if it were clear, we would have no need of hope. We only have hope in situations in which there is uncertainty, and and hope for that reason is never an empirically based idea because if it had a, if it was warranted by reality we wouldn't need it you see and what and when you point out the example of Havel finding hope in what many would describe did describe as a hopeless situation you get to this important question not just of historical and political agency, but also of intellectual and emotional and even spiritual agency. Havel certainly wouldn't mind that word, Um, which is to say that discouraging circumstances are precisely when hope should be developed, not when hope should be abandoned. Yes, I think the word spiritual is really the, the perfect one, because intellectually speaking, if we're honest, in a way, none of us knows. I mean, maybe we are on the cusp of some uh, horrific decline. Maybe we will, you know, sort of slide to some catastrophic uh, future determined by climate change or warfare, uh, or maybe the civil war that people sort of glibly speculate about about at the moment. Maybe that will come to pass. Or even, by the way, some non-catastrophic state of mediocrity and listlessness. That may all be... uh, in our future, it's, it's, it's certainly possible, uh, and it's not wrong to, to speculate about that, I would say, but uh, what hope enabled for Havel in his life, his sort of personal life, uh, but more importantly in his thought, is it enabled courage, because why, after all, <laughs> would you need courage if not to advocate for those things that, uh, that make you hopeful? And if that, if that axiom is correct, that sort of spiritual axiom, you could say, if that's correct, uh, then the inverse is probably true as well, that uh, the more you sort of build up your own internal sense of decline, um, you know, I think that will lead in some ways to uh, to despair and at the very best to, to passivity, uh, but perhaps also just to a kind of submission. You kind of give in uh, to all of the negative trends that you see around you. And very interestingly, this is something that Gibbon himself wrote about, uh, what he couldn't quite believe uh, in the later stages of the Roman Empire, uh, was the extreme fatalism uh, that seemed to develop in the political culture uh, of the time. And he writes about earthquakes and natural disasters being interpreted as something that uh, signified the coming end of the uh, of the Roman political experiment. So, you know, in that sense, I think the stakes are really quite high with how we configure these things, you know, within ourselves and within the, within the culture. But, uh, uh, you know, it's the sort of gladiatorial contest between hope uh, and, uh, and the decline of sentiment. Yeah, I mean, the best formulation of the 
complex intellectual or, or human situation that we're discussing was probably the one, now it occurs to me, given by Gramsci when he described it as pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And that distinction between intellect and will is crucial in times of crisis and confusion. I agree. And uh, it's, uh, you know, a specific iteration of this is, uh, is for me the fatalistic expectation that Trump is going to win the 2024 election and speak now maybe more from a progressive or kind of liberal point of view. Um, and at that moment, um, democracy is going to be over. That's, that's it. That's, that's sort of, that's the end of the, uh, that's the end of the story. Whereas, you know, I think an alternative way of looking at that is that if Trump does win again, and it's certainly not, uh, an impossibility, it's sort of, it's the beginning of the problem or it's the beginning of the, um, uh, of the struggle against that outcome. Uh, and, uh, it's, uh, it's very, very, uh, worrisome, uh, the celebration, not just the acknowledgement of a certain, uh, pessimism of the will, but the celebration of that, uh, it goes back again to that sort of jubilance, the schadenfreude you mentioned, uh, at the beginning of our, uh, discussion, sort of, um, uh, what a relief in a way <laughs> we no longer really have to be engaged uh, because it's all, it's all slipping through our fingers. Some of it I think has to do with our sense of the time frame or the temporality of the crisis we're going through the, the what we are experiencing now. And let's just use for, for a shorthand, let's just say Trumpism um, is not an event. It's an era. And it can't be measured in four-year cycles. And it would be a partly because it's not just a political crisis, but it's, it's, it's gotten into the water. It's a cultural crisis as well. And in that sense, sometimes I worry that Americans are peculiarly unqualified for this because the, the, the mentality of problem-solving is not the same as the mentality of long-term struggles. They're very different mentalities. Americans are oriented towards solutions. You have a problem, we are ingenious, we have the dough, we'll fix it. But that is not what we're facing here. We're facing the prospect, we're in the middle already, of a long-term struggle as were some of the people you mentioned just before. And one has to know what a struggle is and how to pace oneself and how to, if you'll pardon the expression, keep hope alive. And, uh, and that is something that, and, and, and of course the acceleration of our psychologies by the technology also doesn't contribute to the patience that is necessary for a long struggle. Yes, um, the uh, you know sort of willingness to live within certain uh, contradictions. As I understand the first four Trump years, uh, and you know I hope it will be the only four Trump years. But as I understand the first four Trump years, you have great damage being done to American democracy uh, from within the White House, uh, and you know in, in, in coming from many different corners, but uh, uh, a fraying of the constitutional order the kind of degradation of political discourse, which is almost without precedent in American life, 
uh, and one could go on and on with uh, you know the list of 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 uh, of negative developments uh, that were occurring in those years. But the contradiction of the Trump years is that Trump provoked a kind of uh, intellectual fervor. He provoked a kind of excellence in journalism uh, that wasn't there before. Uh, the superb investigative journalism of the Trump uh, era, uh, a new kind of uh, civic activism uh, in, in many ways, a new understanding even of the, uh, of, of the public sphere. Uh, and that too is a story of the, uh, of the Trump period. And I think uh, to elaborate upon your point about developing the sense of patience and a kind of capacity to live with, with, with what will be a very long-term uh, struggle sort of for the better angels uh, to, to prevail in American politics, uh, an awareness of that kind of, uh, of that kind of contradiction. And likewise, you know, uh, in the Obama years, there was a kind of torpor uh, in American life in, in many ways. So sometimes when you don't have that struggle, you kind of lose some of the muscle memory or the capacity uh, to, uh, to move against it. So, you know, I would, I would urge upon us uh, as we contemplate uh, the country's decline uh, you know, to sort of be as dialectical uh, as 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 possible about it. Perhaps a dip, a kind of moment of decline, is actually uh, a, a precursor, almost a precondition for renewal. I have to pause to note that Liberties has so far hearted Gramsci and the dialectic. I want to be clear about that. Uh, I see your point also confirmed in the kinds of young people. Uh, not all of whom make my day, um, who have decided to run for office at various levels and who have decided to actually um, turn to the political system. Uh, because I think you will agree that whatever happens, the only, the only instruments of effective change in a country as vast and complicated as ours when dealing with primary crises such as health care and national security and climate change and, and equality, the only serious instruments of change are political institutions. And one of the things that we have been seeing uh, is, I would have said, a surprising absence of cynicism about politics. We've seen quite the contrary. Uh, we've seen a people jumping into politics, and uh, and that's that's a very positive development, and that, that is about a long term struggle. Yes, it's kind of the Stacey Abrams storyline uh, of the uh, of the uh, of the of, of the Trump years, uh, and um, uh, that is. Uh, uh, that is very, very true. I mean, I do think that the declinist hypothesis is quite prominent among young people. I think it's prominent among college students and educated younger people uh, at, at the moment, but um, it's not so strong that it's, that it's constraining the sort of will to, uh, to participate and to, uh, and, and to run for office and to make certain investments uh, in the future. But, uh, you know, sort of our intellectual culture is, I think, beset. Uh, with declinism and that spirit that you're describing that's there in these sort of younger idealistic politicians who are jumping into the fray. Interestingly, I don't find too much evidence for you know, that sort of uh, optimistic can-do spirit in our intellectual life. Maybe it's not the general spirit of intellectuals. That's possible, but it does seem to be surprisingly uh, thin. 
Yeah, I'm not a close observer of young people myself, but I do sometimes note that, uh, first of all, I don't believe in generational analysis. I think it's absolutely the silliest kind of categorical analysis because every generation contains every human type. But but I, sometimes I seem to sense that young people oscillate between there's nothing we can do and there's everything we can do. Uh, it's a little bit like Beckett's famous line in Godot, I can't go on, I'll go on. And which, of course, is the great, you know, there was there was a wonderful Palestinian writer, a man called Emil Habibi, uh, who was a real figure uh, in East Jerusalem, even in even in Jerusalem and in West Jerusalem, too, I mean. And he um, he was the author um, of a novel, a satirical novel. And his protagonist, he referred to, and it, you can translate it in two ways. His protagonist was either, he called him either a pessimist or an optimist, if you see what I mean. Meaning that there was no point in separating the pessimism out from the optimism because the circumstances required and probably always do require a mixture of both. So that being an optimist, may be the most intelligent way to navigate a chaotic or entropic political and social situation. That seems, uh, uh, you know, that seems very, uh, that seems very persuasive to me. And I wonder if to translate that into kind of uh, intellectual terms, uh, there's an urgent need for the case, um, the case for the future. Uh, and uh, for the sort of multiplicity uh, of, of of trajectories, you know, I sort of went out in search of authors who are writing about decline and came up with dozens upon dozens, upon dozens of uh, of examples. Uh, I would be hard pressed, and you know, I think we can sort of pass over pretty quickly the sort of Tom Friedman's and Stephen Pinker's and the sort of publicists who traffic in these, you know sort of blandly optimistic narratives. It's not really that that I have in mind, but a sort of persuasive case. Uh, for <laughs> for the for the for the for the, for the anti declinism, but you know, if, if you have optimism uh, in in the pages of literature, I'm curious what that would look like uh, in a kind of in a kind of intellectual sense. It won't look like Sally Rooney, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, the most the best one word English translation for optimism, it occurs to me, is liberalism. Because, you know, I mean, if you consider the American founding, for example, we, they, those, those geniuses, some of whom I agree were slaveholders, um, those geniuses founded a democratic republic based not on an optimistic analysis of human nature, but on a pessimistic one. They believed in the ineradicability of conflict and interest and faction and, and limited perspectives from human affairs. And yet, on the basis of what would, we would describe as a rather bleak view of the human person, or at least not as a glowing view of the human person, they proceeded to found on this view a democracy, which gave, which gave unprecedented agency to ordinary individuals. And so you have there the, the coexistence of pessimism and optimism. So maybe, maybe liberalism is optimism.
that seems very possible to me. I mean, you could sort of go back in time from from Lincoln to the uh, to the founders. I mean, the notable thing about Lincoln, it's sort of there in the photographs, it's there in the prose, uh, it's certainly there in the life story, is the great melancholy uh, of the man and the, the loss of his of his young child when he was uh, in the White House, the, the bloodshed that he saw all around him and felt sort of personally responsible for. Um, all of that is there, and it kind of gives that uh, King James, you know, sort of Bible eloquence to his prose and writing and thinking. But of course, you have the Gettysburg Address, which is retrospective to a degree, uh, but is by no means. And my God, 1863 in the in the wake of Gettysburg, it would have been easy enough to be the Kleinist, but still, uh, he goes onto that cemetery and onto that battlefield and makes a very different kind of statement. In the essay itself, I, you know address uh, the Federalist Papers and the distinction drawn in the Federalist Papers between a government founded on reflection and choice and one that's founded on accident uh, and uh, and force. And I think reflection and choice, you know, maybe there too you have a kind of optimism because it's neutral. You know, reflection and choice might be about dealing with challenges, threats, problems. It might be about seizing certain opportunities. It might be about things getting better, things getting worse. It, you know, it doesn't rely on either decline or progress, but I'm quite convinced that accident and force work perfectly in the declinist narrative. You're just going to succumb eventually to, to those things because that's where decline is, is, is pushing you. You analyze that very skillfully in your essay. I mean, you're right. The second inaugural certainly is a document of optimism because of its ability to, to its empathetic ability to see both sides and to see the tragedy and yet to proceed. And yet to proceed. I mean, when Lincoln said that both sides prayed to the same God and so on, that was not his way of saying that he was no longer going to prosecute the Civil War to victory for the Union. I mean, he was he was intent on victory for the Union, but he was not immune to the dark side. And sometimes um, the problem with some of our rationalists and our technocrats and our problem solvers is that they are ignorant of the dark side, and I don't mean to sound like Obi Wan Kenobi, but um, but 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 they are, you know, there are rationalists who don't care about the dark side, and they are the fools, uh, and then there are the rationalists, the great rationalists, who were obsessed with understanding the the amount and nature of unreason in the world. Because that was that was the, those were the only terms on which they could continue to behave rationally, you know. I mean, uh, and the founding fathers, I think, were like that. Lincoln was like that. Freud, Thomas Mann, uh, Isaiah Berlin. Uh, I mean, and that is again, it's optimism. It's optimism. I would throw FDR uh, into the into the mix as well. Why? Explain more a little about that. Well, in part from his experiences with polio, um, but, you know, I think very crucial to FDR before the 1930s and the rise of fascism is that FDR was assistant secretary to the Navy during the First World War uh, and saw the world come apart once. And so he was not uh, happy to see it come apart a second time, but he was also not that uh, surprised. And you think of that phrase, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I mean, it's a little bit of a contradictory phrase in some ways, but uh, um you know that's precisely the spirit of it. It doesn't uh, it doesn't negate fear. Uh, it doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist. But uh, uh, you know, sort of doing what one can to counter 
the passivity, the sort of fatalism that's often implicit to extreme forms of fear. And to go into the technocrats just for a moment, you know, the technocratic liberalism that did flourish in the Obama years left liberals at least, or Democrats, progressives, very ill-equipped to deal with Trump, who's a master of political unreason. Uh, I'm sure Trump hasn't read a page of Freud or, or, or psychoanalysis, but he's acute uh, in speaking to people's uh, irrational uh, hopes, irrational fears, irrational expectations. You know, American carnage is a curious phrase uh, to use in the in, in January of 2017, but uh, one kind of knows what he's up to with that. And so that it wasn't a fair fight uh, between the technocratic rationalists and the, and, and the Trumpian uh, irrationalism. And perhaps if if we learn anything in the intervening years, assuming Trump does run again in 2024, to be prepared for that sort of irrationalism is, is absolutely crucial. So it depends on a ability to look into the dark side. Uh, and I don't think that we've done, <laughs> I don't think we've done all the necessary work. I agree with you. I agree with you. And too, too often it's about anger and condescension uh, and um, contempt. And, you know, there is a certain basis in reality for contempt for racism and white supremacy and uh, xenophobia and nativism and so on. But contempt will not get you very far. Uh, it really won't. Uh, let's, um, let's take the conversation about decline a little bit closer to policy. One of the reasons that, that you deplore decline, and I certainly deplore decline, American decline, is not just because I miss what we used to be. It's not just the sentimental objection. It's also because I think it's making us derelict and delinquent in some of our primary duties, uh, both at home and abroad. Uh, I believe that we have responsibilities abroad. I mean, almost nobody else believes this anymore, but some of us still do. Uh, and our feeling that we can no longer handle this stuff is an alibi for ignoring certain the, the responsibilities of power. The more powerless we describe ourselves as being, the less we need to confront the, the responsibilities of power. And similarly, domestically, one has to ask oneself if we can ever do anything big anymore domestically. Uh, it, it's reached a point where, you know, the, the great example of this would be the the amount of time it took just to get a 9-11 memorial up. But if you look at, at already we read about, uh, it's been, you know, the ink on the infrastructure bill is still, is still wet. And we're already re reading about the enormous difficulties and obstacles and delays and the complexities of the processes and so on. And there is a certain kind of decadence about, that kind of bureaucratic paralysis. Michael, let's take our conversation about declinism in America a little closer to the dimension of policy. Uh, the reason that I deplore American declinism, and I think that you deplore American declinism, is not only sentimental. It's not only that I miss what we used to be or that I miss being to speak vulgarly, number one, or anything like that. It's also that I believe that American decline, insofar as it's real, represents derelictions of many of our duties uh, abroad and at home. 
I think abroad, the more we speak of our own powerlessness, the more we no longer need to speak about the responsibilities of power. Uh, you know, um, if America no longer has the ability to use force to do good in the world, we'll put aside the argument that, it, that its force never does good in the world. That's another afternoon's conversation. But if America no longer has the ability to do good in the world in a, in a decisive way, then why even discuss it? And similarly at home, um, I look at the enormous hurdles that we face whenever, as a society, we try to do anything big. You know, the ink on the infrastructure bill is still wet, and already one is reading about the obstacles and the hurdles and the impediments and the red tape and the complexities that will inevitably delay the implementation of these, 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 these disbursements and these programs and so on. And when I read all about this, I think this degree of complexity, let's call it, or of delay, which comes down to the same thing, becomes not only a form of decadence, in which you just cannot get anything done, uh, but also a, a, a delinquence, a moral and social delinquence on, on our part and on the part of our government. So, you know, in response, let me reference a, a Russian joke about politics, um, which is that uh, we hope things would, would turn out better. Instead, they turned out as they always do. Um, which, which is funny, uh, and you know, it speaks to maybe human nature as much as it does to uh, to politics. But I would never want to embrace the cynicism that makes that joke uh, as as funny as it is. So I will offer two two arguments I'd like to articulate against uh, against declinism or against the easy hypothesis that uh, the United States is in is in decline. The first, I think, is just instinctual on my part. Uh, I think it's not true. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it overlooks uh, the enormous vitality uh, and, uh, in, in some respect, even the glittering qualities uh, of American mm -hmm. life, even under the pandemic, which has dulled life in every country and certainly in, in, in ours. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, the vitality is extraordinary. I never felt the vitality, to, to repeat myself from a moment ago, I never felt the vitality as, as acutely as I did in the Trump years. Uh, it felt like a culture that was never respect uh, alive. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't want to underestimate that, and I wouldn't want to uh, lose lose touch with that. What is remarkable in all of this, including among the declinists, uh, is how much people care about this country, uh, the enormous uh, investments that people have, emotional, intellectual, political, uh, and otherwise. And even if that leads uh, to certain kinds of political and intellectual cul-de-sacs, uh, it's also a, a very healthy sign. So uh, I would want to overplay almost the vitality uh, and the strengths, uh, perhaps as an antidote to decline, but also just as part of the story. Uh, and if you want to have a sense of the full canvas, that has to be uh, an important, perhaps even prominent part of the, uh, of the picture. But secondly, uh, I think even if it is true, even if 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be able to say, yes, the country began its slow decline at... I don't know, year 2000 or year 2010 or 2016, uh, and it's only proceeded apace. Even if that's true, it's not particularly helpful for us to uh, uh, 
to, to fully believe that. Uh, and I, we'll go back here again to the figure of Václav Havel uh, in the late 1970s. That was a time when a lot of people of Havel's, you know, sort of human excellence and, and political idealism were just drinking themselves to death, uh, sort of opting out of politics, uh, you know, sort of uh, succumbing in a way uh, to the very plausible schemes of decline uh, that were, 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 were all around them. And he was able to somehow, you know, by the alchemy of his mind and imagination, uh, to transform the materials of daily life into something that was, uh, that was truly hopeful. So in that sense, you know, I don't want to be whistling past the, uh, the cemetery, uh, and nobody needs a kind of false sense of, 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 of hope, but, uh, decline is not anything that anybody really benefits, anybody really benefits from, uh, from indulging. Right. Maybe, maybe the word we should be looking at to describe our situation is not decline, but it's a word that used to, was often used to describe Mexico under the pre and is now used to describe Egypt. It was used to describe the Soviet Union under Brezhnev, and that is immobilism. Uh, just a stasis determined by various causes that need to be unraveled because um, we are too big and powerful and there are 300 some million people whose destinies will be determined in our country and there are injustices in our country and there are things we need to to assist with around the world and the worst the worst thing we could be I think is immobile I mean, I'm not arguing for action for its own sake, which we know historically was a form of the fascist ideology. But still, um, we need, as you said earlier, we need to renew the sense of American agency. And, you know, you mentioned Isaiah Berlin. Uh, he had a wonderful phrase. He said that there's no guarantee. I think he was citing somebody else. But he said there's no guarantee that what's true about politics is interesting. And we sort of... To be mired in a in a period of immobilism, stasis, use the phrase gridlock, you know, there are many kind of metaphors that we can come up with. It. Uh, you know, it seems in a, in a sense obviously true. It's not very interesting. It's kind of a boring destiny. So here's another explanation for the appeal of declinism at the moment. We're all audi auditioning to be either Christopher Isherwood or to be Hannah Arendt or Walter Benjamin in the Weimar Republic because that's pretty exciting. You know, everything's going up and and uh, we all want to perform on, you know, sort of cabaret, on the cabaret stage in Broadway. Uh, and we can't consign ourselves to the less interesting fate of being a part of a very, you know, vibrant, interesting, troubled country that most likely is just going to muddle through. Uh, and I hope it does. But, you know, that's just not the most interesting destiny. That's right. But it's a, but it's a, a better destiny than many we can contemplate. Uh, Michael, Michael, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your essay. Um, and uh, we'll see you and read you soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me and, and for, for letting me appear in your pages. Thank you, my friend. Bye. Thanks very much for listening. As I mentioned in the intro, uh, the essay is available on our website, and if you are a subscriber, you can read it. If you are not yet a subscriber, head over to the website, libertiesjournal.com, and subscribe.